What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. All right, this week we had on Drew with Fiat Growth. Fiat Growth is an emerging VC focused on supporting and growing the next generation of fintech companies. In this talk, we cover some differences in evaluating and investing in different companies at different stages of the life cycle, overcoming hurdles of selling into financial services, and subsectors of fintech that Drew and the team are most excited about over the next five to 10 years. Yo, everybody, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. Today, we have someone who I'm going to let give themselves an intro, but it's a brother. And that makes me smile on this beautiful day. And when I say brother, because most people in VC aren't black, that means a black person. <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and let you take off. You happen to focus on a space that is near and dear to my heart because I started my world in fintech and just seeing you ascend and me and Clay noticing your path has been cool. So run it up. Yeah, love it. Love it. Thanks again for having me and uh, super excited to tell you a little bit more about myself and what I'm building. My name is Drew Glover. I am a co-founder of Fiat Growth, a growth consultancy that specifically focuses on the fintech space. And I am a general partner and co-founder of Fiat Ventures. So give you a little bit more insight on what those both are. So Fiat Growth was founded a little over four years ago by myself and my co-founder, Alex Harris. We saw this really interesting opportunity as we were both building or owning business development and growth at Steady and Chime, Chime being the large neobank. And we had a ton of companies trying to partner with us at one point. And we looked at all these companies and said to ourselves, man, like there is such an interesting, special thing happening in fintech where folks are no longer building products for the 1%, but they're building it for the 99% of America that need the most financial help and financial freedom. So we started partnering with those companies, started co-advising them and organically just started building a really interesting business model where we would get a flat retainer for our services to help them scale. But we'd also ask for the right to invest in, in every company we work with. We knew we didn't have the money at the time, but we knew in the future, we would be in a really good place to, to take advantage of those rights to invest. Fast forward to today, Fiat Growth, our growth consultancies, 25 full-time employees. We work with anywhere between 30 and 40 companies at really any given time, specifically focused on the fintech space. And in 2021, we founded Fiat Ventures, which is our venture fund. It's a fund one, it's a $15 million venture fund where we almost exclusively invest in our clients through Fiat Growth, the consultancy. So just taking a quick step back there so everyone understands the full breadth is Fiat Growth is our growth consultancy where we get to help these really incredible companies in the fintech space scale. But it also doubles as one of the better due diligence arms in the business because we get to work hands-on with founders and companies in a really intimate way. And once we see the writing on the wall that they are becoming a special company, at that point, we take advantage of our right to invest and lean in from the venture side to decide if we want to invest or not. So they are two separate entities, but very much work on a very deep level together so we can like experience success on both ends. Yeah, I love it. I've actually been forming theses as in part of my business on the LP side around businesses adjacent to venture, utilizing their platforms and synergistic alignments to launch a fund. And I think one, you're in a hot space, two, the core areas we can really help people, which I'll get into some of the soft areas or like newer spaces is growth, hiring, et cetera. And I think that your platform is aligned. 
I would love to hear how you decided that it was time to launch your first fund. Like, how did you think about the economics? How did you think about potential conflicts or alignments? Yeah. And what you envision this meaning for the broader platform, like the elevator pitch? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I wish I could tell you that when I started Fiat Growth, I said, great, a year from now, we're going to start a fund. I've always been like a really great recruiter, and so is my co-founder, but we're really great at recruiting talent when it's opportunistic hiring. It's not necessarily planned hiring, meaning like we didn't throw a JD out there and say, hey, who wants to start a fund with us? We had just done a really good job of cultivating relationships throughout our career and bringing on the right advisors. Really great opportunity popped up as we were really starting to hit our stride with Fiat Growth, the consultancy, where you know one of our really close advisors had decided to break out of the fintech space. He was previously working at SoFi, Ripple, the cryptocurrency company, and he basically came to us saying, hey, like you guys have really interesting portfolio of clients would love to learn more about what, where my next step could land. And in short, after, you know, getting him in front of a couple of different people, I said, Hey man, what do you want to do with your career? And the first thing he said was, I would actually love to start my own venture fund. And I said, dude, we've worked with 60 clients over the past two years at that time. You should come in and help us found our own venture fund. And we can walk into all of our clients and basically handpick the ones that we're most excited about investing in. And that can be like our initial investments. First and foremost, to start a fund, it is a grind. The type of DNA of a managing partner, someone that's going to help co-found and really be like the operator behind it all just needs to be a different beast. So Marcos Fernandez is our, our managing partner. And he is just like one of the most incredible operational minds that I've met to date and has done an incredible job helping us not only organize the fundraising process, but also making so that every little bit and every kind of nook that you might like be blind to in building a fund and making sure we're doing it the right way from both the compliance standpoint and an organizational standpoint, he's really taken on his back and make sure that we kind of hand deliver that. But in terms of deciding to do I it- I feel like you've been too humble. You done put some sauce in there. What'd you say? I said, you've been too humble. We both know you done put some sauce into that, <laughs> that part as well. It's, and I'm saying like the grind itself, of course, Marcos was the leader there, but I'll take a step back, man. It was, we, we had over a thousand, we've had over a thousand different conversations to raise it. At the end of the day, a venture capitalist, yes, you got to evaluate co uh, companies. You got to have access. Luckily that's built into Fiat Growth, our business, but at the end of the day, man, it's the grind. Yeah. Marcos took, took lead on the organization behind it, but we are sales men and women at the end of the day, we have to go raise the money. I think a lot of people just have just exposure to these big, massive firms where you get to join right out of business school. But the people at the top, they were the ones that at the beginning had to go on a roadshow, put together a thesis, put together an investment mission statement, and go tell the world why it means something and why it matters. And uh, I'm telling you, those thousand conversations started out with three or 400 conversations, and then an introduction to another person, introduction to another person, introduction to another person. We basically spent 12 months curating a list of LPs that like, in, like deeply intrinsically believe in terms of how we think about investing. But yes, of course, I was deep in there, man. I played a massive role, but one Come of, on, one Mike, of man, you know, I'm not going to let you take yourself out of it. That's cool. <laughs> of course not. What was the original thesis behind the fund? What areas were you excited about? 
how do you believe that you all would get some proprietary insights? And then uh, after that, I want to kind of dive into the process of fundraising itself. Maybe yeah. to get some, some tips. The initial thesis is just in terms of why us, why now, is one, historically, we weren't coming from Andreessen or Sequoia and said, hey, we've done this for 10 years. That's why you should invest in us. We had this very unique backdoor. The backdoor was Fiat Growth Our Consultancy. We had a built-in evaluation and due diligence mechanism in our business, and we were growth professionals. At the end of the day, a company's overall success is based on how much they can grow and how equitable they can, they can grow, meaning they're not overspending for users or own, overspending for clients. So what we did, man, is we initially walked into a room and said, these are all the companies we have the right to invest in from day one. If we had invested in every single one of them, which we hadn't because we didn't have the money at the time, this is what our portfolio would look like as investors. And it was like 30, 40 X. It was like jaw dropping type of numbers. So we basically said, okay, if you had given us this money a while ago, this is how we would have invested it. So therefore you should basically back us and, and let us just keep running here, but let us do it with the money we want to invest in. So that mission statement to your question was two things. One is we believe the access to financial technology needs to drop. Historically, there was a massive barrier for, call it the 75% of America that doesn't have $500 in savings in case of an emergency, couldn't take part in this way to build generational wealth. And we saw all these products popping up around the world that were looking to solve for that, starting with neobanks that were getting rid of overdraft fees, which was putting people into debt with a mixture of kind of fintech and, and health and healthcare, where healthcare is still underinsured, uninsured individuals, still the main reason that they're putting people into debt as well. But there's all these different ways through fintech technology that can help reimagine how to make it the world that needs fintech help the most can get access to technology that's not only going to improve their financial health, but improve their overall health as individuals and how they manage their money in their life. Got you. And then from a stage perspective, where does Fiat, the consultancy or agency usually come in? It sounds like a lot of agencies have been positioning themselves to get paid partially in cash, partially in equity, but it makes a lot more sense to say, just pay me in cash and then I'll come in and buy equity from an alignment perspective. Are you doing that at the seed in series A? Are you doing that at gross? Like a lot of your companies are pretty reputable from your website, not very impressive. So I'm curious as to how early you would have come in on this. Yeah. So Fiat Growth and Fiat Ventures is a little bit different. We, on, on the Fiat Growth side, our growth consultancy, we take a lot of pride in just having exposure to the entire market. Those are public companies to, to pre-seed companies. So when we walk into a company, whatever their growth stage is, we can say, listen, we understand the market. We know how much you should be paying, what your CAC should be, the whole nine. So for the Fiat Growth side, we're working with companies that are pre-seed all the way up to public companies. On the venture side, we're investing in anywhere from pre-seed to call it like series A, really depending on the, on the valuation. So our typical check size is going to be somewhere between 50K and 500K from an initial check. Through this fund, we'll have around 25 investments. We've made around 19 to date. And then the rest of those funds are held as reserves. So we can like double down and triple down on the companies that we're most excited about. So from our standpoint, we are very much an early stage investor. However, as we continue to raise fund two, three, four, five, I see ourselves much more becoming not only generalists, really focusing on payments as a whole, but also being able to jump into to companies at different stages, mainly because the fiat growth consultancy model gives us exposure 
to both invest in those companies and understand what makes that company special and why they should be investable or not. Gotcha. That makes a ton of sense. And understanding the growth trajectories and the hacks and distribution channels, et cetera, that gives you a ton of insights into customer demands, holes in the market, and how the best companies are operating. So I'm pretty sure that you all have some unique insights into if a pre-seed company has a solid idea or opportunity, how it may be able to scale pretty quickly and actually probably give the, the founder the exact roadmap to get there. That's nice. Yeah, we, well, we just launched what we call Fiat Labs, where because of the exposure we have in the market, and to your point, right, just like the overall kind of growth exposure we have of what works, what doesn't work, we've seen a thousand different acquisition funnels, right? We have a really incredible network with founders. We also have a ton of our own ideas in-house just because of the exposure we have. So Fiat Labs is typically what we plan on doing, right, is basically having anywhere between two to four companies a year where we join like where it's a seedling of an idea, come in, take a large, larger ownership percentage by both putting in a check from Fiat Ventures, but also leading growth from day one on Fiat growth. And, um, and basically scaling that business up to whatever that kind of like first milestone is, if it's a seed round, if it's a series A, but because we understand what's not being built right now, and what should be built, and what the what the globe is looking for in their next fintech product, we really want to be able to help build some of those products that, that we're not seeing built as we sit from the vantage point of both a growth marketer as well as a VC. So you're going to launch a studio or an incubator? We don't love the word incubator because we don't want to be Y Combinator and we don't want to, and I'll give you my, my, my two cents on this. Y Combinator, I love them. They have an incredible foothold and wedge in the space. But one thing I don't love is they basically invest in teams and do it almost a thousand times a year. And they just cross their fingers that one of them becomes a unicorn. A studio is one where like, we are literally standing up everything from zero to one. Yeah. The economics are the opposite. Yeah. The studio model is my favorite model in venture. And I'm going to launch my own studio. Like I've ran one, I ran one a year or so ago and launched seven companies. Two of them end up being pretty successful and got C, but we own so much of it. At such a low buy-in price that it's just, if these things hit, like, it's incredible. It's big. It's big. And, and from a venture capitalist perspective, one thing I don't love about venture capital is when you're raising it, when you're investing money, like sometimes you, like really most of the time, you can only invest in what we believe are going to be multi-billion dollar companies. However, with that model, you can be very happy with a hundred million dollar company or $200 million dollar company because you have a $50 million outcome. The average totally. Outcome takes 250k to start to about 40% of the business. You sell that thing for $50 million and you only got diluted once by 20%. Come on. It's a win-win. It's incredible. It's a win-win. Totally. So I'm excited to see that thing launch. I Let me know it. if you're going to be selling LPs or equity stake or you're going to be raising a fund with it. I'm more interested in the equity stake. Yeah, we're still playing with it. I know this initial piece of labs will come from the fund and then it'll be the proof point of how big we want to make it. Or obviously we'll talk to our LPs and see how they want to, if they want to raise a separate fund for it, if they want to keep it within the family. But we just want to make sure we have the ability to build companies, which is super exciting. I will keep you posted though. Cool. Let's dive into some of the details of how Fiat makes everything jump. Maybe talk about, actually pause. Any tip for fundraising for our managers who are emerging? 
and then we'll dive into the how fiat works conversation. Yeah, this is going to sound super obvious. If you think you need to have, if you think you need to have 500 conversations, double that. Whatever you think it is, double it. To raise the fund, it was a numbers game. Again, I'm making the assumption that every emerging manager out there has a unique perspective, a unique mission, has a reason why someone should invest in you. But the, the best LPs that we got in our fund didn't come from one calls, didn't come from one call closes, right? That came from getting on a call and them saying, oh, you should talk to these three people. Oh, you should talk to these four people. You should talk to these five people. And then all of a sudden you follow the family tree of where the conversation started. And we realized that like, it took us 20, 20 additional meetings off the initial meeting with other people for us to find that perfect match of an LP that we believe is going to be with us for until we're in fund, fund 10 in, in 2028. So I would just say, have more meetings than you can imagine you would ever need and come to all those calls with the mind, with the mindset that this could be the one. Makes sense. Yeah. I think everything is just a numbers game. And a lot of times it actually only does take one, one main brand anchor with three friends can change everything. But uh, okay. Now let's dive into the actual business and really some tips for the founder folks who might be listening as well. Can you talk about the types of KPIs, nuances, et cetera, that you all are typically tracking and optimizing to determine and impact a company's success? Yeah, it's a lot of it's really dependent on the type of business it is. And I think it all comes back to the focus that you have as a venture investor. We We've taken the approach, unlike many other emerging managers, of we are very focused within fintech, at least for fund one, and that be payments. And, you know, a lot of that is actually like direct to consumer products. And that's because that's where we come from, or direct to consumer platforms. We have some B2B, we have some Web3. In terms of the stuff we're looking for in a lot of these businesses is unique acquisition funnels and being able to have a competitive advantage to have an acquisition funnel where you're not just simply competing with people on Meta and people on Google. And if you're a digital bank, you're not competing against Wells Fargo and Bank of America to acquire a user. A good example here is the invest, investment we made in a company called Copper. Copper is a bank for teens. They have a super unique go-to-market strategy where they actually go into high schools and activate those student bodies versus just trying to go acquire new users online. Their CEOs had another company previously that had built a company in the exact same way. They got into 50% of all the high schools across the US. They're instilling the exact same strategy, exact same strategy with their teen bank. Us as investors are very excited because it all comes down to how much you are you spending to acquire a customer. And if you're competing with people that have $20 billion and you've only raised $20 million, then you're setting yourself up for failure. But if you have a clear path to being able to activate a user base in an affordable way, then, hey, tell me more about your business. Although typically you have to have a fairly unique business to be able to open those unique acquisition funnels. Other stuff is retention, how, like, how, how organic is your growth? Meaning, hey, if you have a user, can you make that user such a believer in your product that they will refer it to everyone in the network? And then also being able to like open up these life cycle opportunities. You hear me talking about growth and like the nitty gritty of growth. But at the end of the day here, as we're walking into a next round of funding or preparing for it, the first question any, any VC is going to ask you is like, how are you guys acquiring users? 
And do you, are you guys doing it equitably? And if I gave you $10 million tomorrow, how would you spend it? And as a founder, if you can look at VC right back in the face and say, if you gave me $10 million, I could acquire it equitably. This is for the number I can acquire it at. And I could scale it up to us spending $10 million a month. And we could ride this thing to the moon. Like that is every VC's like big dream statement of being like, great, where do I sign? Where do I give you the money? So that's what we focus on. And those are the typical type of metrics that we're trying to follow and make sure we're scaling it up equitably. Love that. All one point. Yeah, I don't think many people have that level of granularity. How often do you find that founders have that organically versus having to work with someone like you? I don't know a lot of repeat founders or people who come from a growth background may know it, but do you think a lot of people's business intuitions lead them down those paths or what do you think? I actually think, I think the market shift is actually helped a lot of founders do that. Don't get me wrong. There's like pluses and minuses to this, to the shift of, from the bull market over the last call, like three to six months here. But I think that there's some really great things that came from it because it's pushed people to be a lot more creative in terms of how they acquire and scale. Uh, Six months ago, people go, yeah, I'm just going to go raise a hundred million dollar round off some somewhat exciting metrics and just say, hey, it doesn't matter how we get the users. Let's just spend the money and get the users. There's a level of creativity that's coming with like the, with the founders now, which is actually really great because one, it's making it so we're truly building, uh, we're building businesses on the backs of like really sound business models. And we're seeing revenue earlier where I think what was happening in the market is a lot of people were saying, great, we're getting all the right engagement, but the revenue is, is we'll worry about that in the series B and series C. Like we're worrying about that a little bit earlier now. So I, again, one other shift to the market is it's created. So there's a little bit less white noise. I think there's less people starting businesses because they believe they could go get a really great valuation out of the seed. And we're seeing people come yeah. in the market now and being like, Hey, I'm coming, I'm coming in this because I'm that founder. I got that DNA. I know I can do it. Or even more importantly, I've done it before. So I know I can do it again. Although like, a lot of a little bit more power is coming back in the VC seat necessarily versus the founder seat, just because we don't have to just be jumping all over valuations trying to get in deals, but we can be a little bit more methodical on both ends of who do I want to invest? Who's the smart money I want to invest in, in, in my business? But at the same time, as a VC, we can make the right measurements to make sure that this is the right investment. Got you. No, that's true. Have you, you all focus on companies that sell to SMBs and enterprises as well, or like large financial institutions? Yes. How has that been a difference in approach for you all? What are you seeing? Are people spinning up those companies more or less in this time? And can you answer the same metrics or hacks or frameworks question that we talked about before? Yeah. Can you quickly repeat the first part of the question again? I want to make sure I was saying yes to the right thing. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So I was asking if you focus on effectively B2B businesses as well, which encompasses SMBs, enterprises, and financial service companies. And just wondering if you're seeing people be a little bit more timid in the market about those, and then just how you're approaching those and how they're different from your D2C or maybe B2C counterparts. Yeah. So we do a little bit less investing in that space just because it just takes a little bit more of a a little bit more of a measured approach. We do work with a lot of these companies on the fiat growth side of the business. The main one is when it comes to B2B and your growth and you're coming from a growth marketing mindset, you have less power over the success of a deal going all the way through. And I'll give you an example. 
we have the ability to digitally drive leads into the funnel. But once we have a sales qualified lead, which means that salesperson says the lead that came in is a good lead. I had a first call with them. I think there's an opportunity. Boom. Qual sales qualified lead. Once it hits that sales team, we lose control over what happens to that, where with a direct to consumer product, we basically are able to help design the entire funnel all the way to someone creating their own bank account digitally in that particular instance. So we work with a lot of these companies. One thing we're always trying to do is make sure that we're getting in with these companies early where we can be a true strategic partner. Because the last thing we want is to be able to drive 2000 leads a month and grow it from 20 leads a month to 2000 leads a month. And then it falls in the lap of our client and them say, you guys are doing a great job driving leads, but we're doing a horrible job converting them. Once it leaves the digital, the digital funnel, then we also have to play a role in making sure that the physical, like the sales team is actually converting these into sales. So a lot of times for us, like we just have to do a little bit more diligence. Like, who's your team? Who's leading sales? Can this individual like not only convert these leads into actual closed deals, but can they also build a team to make sure as we keep sending more leads, they can keep hiring effectively, therefore making sure more deals close. Um, so again, from our standpoint, we own the digital aspect. And then we also want to play a role in owning the physical side as well, once it gets in the hands of sales. Got you. Can you let me think? With that, I actually want to pivot. So I was going to go deeper into that, but I just tend to do that as I nerd out. <laughs> Maybe you just tell me and the rest of the community some subsectors within fintech or generally that you enjoy or think might be right for some disruption. I think that the last few years we've seen some infrastructure be established in crypto, which like a lot of people talk about, we can go into that. Yeah. A lot of people are like writing, like people figuring out the neo bank and the B2B and the white label banking as a service areas and FinTech. Are any of those interesting to you? Are there new subsectors that you're seeing emerge, new business models, go to market hacks? et cetera, that you're focused on as an investor, or even that some of your clients are deploying that you can, without naming them, if you want, <laughs> highlight yeah. them. Yeah, you know, there, there's a couple of interesting things that I think we're spending a lot of time on right now. And you named a couple, I think embedded fintech's really interesting. However, I feel like it's already getting, it's already getting pretty busy in terms of all the banking as a service, lending as a service, all these different products where basically you're offering different platforms, the ability to white label a service, therefore being able to build a bank in three weeks instead of two years, because you no longer need a team of 60 devs. You just need to basically partner with this infrastructure. Um, the ones that I think I, I'm spending the majority of my time on personally, and our team is typically all just focusing on different trends that we're really excited about. One is the future of work. It's been super topical for a while, but as we see the kind of part-time work 1099 space continue to rise, I just think different products that are going to help this type of worker navigate their financial health is going to be incredibly important. It just If you just talk about the big topic of taxes, taxes as a 1099 worker or a consultant, it's significantly different. It also shouldn't be a massive deterrent from wanting to enter the space. There should be products that make it very easy for people to comfortably earn income 
in new and creative ways. I'm also a big believer that the creator economy is going to continue to grow. Um, like the influencers aren't just influencers anymore. They're brands and they are technically 1099 workers. And then also I think like FinTech is getting younger. So I think we're going to see, we're no longer in the days where, you know, what our parents said, oh, we, I had a paper route or I sold lemonade in front of my house when I was a kid. Now we're in a space where kids are opening up Etsy stores and like selling tie-dye socks or they're buying shoes from the sneakers app and reselling them on StockX. They're all making income and they all need to pay taxes on this income regardless of how old they are. And they all need to learn money and financial literacy in a really interesting way. So future of work's a big one. The other two I'll just quickly say is I think fractional ownership is really interesting. Used to be a massive barrier where if you wanted to buy a house, you had to go buy a house. Only a couple people in America have enough money to go do that and put a down payment down. Now there's many different platforms popping up where you can own fractional shares of a stock. You can own fractional ownership of a short-term rental property um, to, a, a, to a, a commercial property, all the way over to owning fractional shares of the Mona Lisa. So I think there's a lot of other places that we'll see fractional ownership pop up where historical things that you had to buy outright, you can now own a fraction of and actually be able to collect dividends on that fractional ownership, which I find super interesting. And also making it so retail investors, again, understand the financial literacy behind what an investment like that looks like. And then very last is Web 2.5. Everyone talks about Web 2, Web 3. I'm a big believer in Web 2.5, which to me is a little bit of Web 2 and a little bit of Web 3 merged together to make it so both sides of the spectrum. So that's, that's one that I haven't, the other ones like coming from like a deep FinTech background and like LPing a few I've been in tune with, I haven't heard many people say web 2.5. Maybe because <laughs> I'll be running from crypto talks half the time. <laughs> but tell me more. Yeah, so I'll tell you this, man. I'm, I'm always, I, historically, I've been an individual that's always running from crypto. Just like, going deep into it. I'm like, oh, I'll have a little bit of exposure to it in the market just because of FOMO, but the deep understanding of it has always been a fearful topic, even as an investor. And I spent a lot of time in the space. Um, so it, it's made me, it's really pushed me to understand there's crypto native, there's a crypto native mindset. Let's call it the person that was investing in like Bitcoin in like 2009 and like 10, 11, 12. And then there's a crypto curious, which is I'm interested, but like, I'm so scared of just like entering the abyss. Therefore, I think there's a really interesting space for web 2.5. Um, and a great example is like an idea that I still think it will pop up at some point, but think about buy now, pay later for the crypto space or for the NFT space. Buy now, pay later is very much a web two type of technology. You can basically buy anything in four installments if you can't afford it up front. But NFTs are very much Web3. But I, and, and let's imagine it within this buy now, pay later scenario, you can actually purchase it with U, USDC. So just like actual fiat currency, cash, instead of having to have Ethereum or have a MetaMask wallet. But like, again, Web2 and buy now, pay later and Web3 and NFT together, it makes it a lot easier for the entry point for someone that doesn't understand the space, but still wants exposure to it. And so I just, I see a lot of these different, I'm starting to see some of these technologies pop up where it's this merging of web two and web three, but making it both sides are comfortable playing on that platform. I think OpenSea is another example. OpenSea is, I'm, still, I'm saying this NFT mindset, but OpenSea is a marketplace and marketplaces have been around forever. Very much a web two type of model for NFTs. 
to enter a shop, a digital shopping mall of NFTs, it's much easier to engage with that model versus saying, hey, you got to go open up a Binance account and then you got to transfer everything over to these altcoins and then you can get access to this like newly minted NFT. I like that. Yeah, it almost, it almost just hits you with the energy of, yo, slow down. Some existing businesses work and everything don't got to be like completely ripped up and replaced. And through the transition from what we do today to what we do tomorrow, there'll definitely be a lot of huge businesses built and a lot of components that are borrowed or imported from the current world. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting space. How about from here, you get to ask me a question. Anything in the oh. fucking world. Shoot. <laughs> I genuinely don't care if it's about tech, culture, my path, my friends. You can ask me anything you want. So I'll go back to something you said earlier about the studio model that you want to create. I'm curious, what type of businesses would you want to focus on in that studio model and why? That's an interesting question because of the approach. I think the approach for me is more important than the type of business. But what I will say is that you want businesses that have similar components to your other businesses or that have similar learnings, business models, et cetera, so that you can have synergies across your stack. And then I'll back up. So the strategy that I want to deploy just generally, I'll give you like insights, is I have a fund of funds, which then helps me invest in funds, which then helps me direct it, like directly invest. The point of that is to have insights into the best managers into the, like, in the space at the earliest stages and a few of the later stages in real time, and then direct insights into those companies and how they're working. And hopefully like relationships with people like Fiat to give me hacks and like the latest and greatest innovation and how to do those businesses the right way. On the studio side, to me, it's all about ownership. So the same way that I'm going to leverage my fund of funds and funds for insights and advice, and the same with the Confluence Network and our Scout Network, I'll do that same exact thing for business ideas. Like I sit in a very unique seat where I happen to have an evergreen capital structure and a vast network. On Confluence, we have 1,500 funds, several thousand investors, I'll have 30 funds that I've invested in, five to 10 fund of funds, and then a stream of entrepreneurs with the platform behind it that I've used to help them. So my thought is, hey, investors, hey, Confluence, hey, podcast members, what are your best ideas for companies? What are the ones you wish you could see? What are ones that you wanna start, but like you're waiting for the right founder? And how about I just built that on my platform? with the expertise that I've had from building myself plus hiring some of the best people in the game to do it. And maybe even partnering with some of my studio investments. And we give you a percentage of the company for starting it. We put up part of the original seed or pre-seed money. And then you have first dibs at getting as much ownership in that company as you want. Or if you want to, you can leave your shop and co-found it with us. Yep. So it really will be about quality of idea 
ability for said idea to scale rapidly and or sell at a clip in a time that makes sense given our initial ownership and the super low buy-in price. And outside of that, we'll just see where it goes. Like the hope is like, what I saw personally is once I started one marketplace business for me to spin up two or three other marketplace businesses meant that I didn't have to go buy a developer again to build out my tech stack. It also meant that I didn't have to relearn all the KPIs that matter for solving the cold start problem. It meant that all I had to do was find out which problems existed in a new market and how the customers believed and how to properly align them in the demand side and launch from there. It also meant that I didn't have to relearn all the investors who love marketplaces. All I had to do was maybe go find some strategic people for those sectors. So in this world, I'm solving for both sides, right? Like I'll have, after the first batch of 10, 20 companies, all the infrastructure needed to launch. And then it's just yielding for ideas. And the investor part is already solved as well. I love that. I love that. And also just look how vertically integrated it is. You really have everything to get it off the ground from the funding to the execution, to the strategy. And I'm agreement. Focus is so important when you're thinking about getting something like this off the ground, even if it's as simple as like marketplaces. It can be any type of marketplace, but being able to get a marketplace off the ground, that is the tough part. And then everything else is just like, how do we build community around it? But very exactly. cool. Very cool. And it's once you do it two or three times, you're like, here are the 15 ways to monetize a marketplace. Let's beta test all 15 rapidly. These four worked. Then you start to see one mature and you're like, oh, actually three of them that didn't work at the initiation state work really well once you have this volume of customers and this partner. Right? And so like those all become repeatable. And remember, we bought somewhere between 30 and 60% of that business for less than a half a million dollars. And your original capital partners were aligned with you with yep. outsized economics because they were there from day one. So you're not getting hyper diluted. You can sell whenever it makes sense. And the hope is that if you do enough of them, a few of them skyrocket and the rest, worst case scenario, you sell at somewhere between the 50 and 150 million mark. Yeah, I love that. And again, like going back to what I said earlier, right? Like, I think there's such a massive market for getting larger ownership and not necessarily having to go create billion dollar companies. Let's go build $50 million, $100 million companies, own 20 to 40% of it. And it'd be, and those are very exciting businesses that are solving massive problems. They're just not on a global scale. Yeah. And the way that it ends up working is that like, if you shoot up 10 companies, like typical venture math will tell you that one of them will make it to at least a series B, right? That's a $300 million, somewhere between two and $500 million company conservatively. And at that point, you still own 27% of the company or like more in some cases, not terrible. And my whole thought is like, I'm the index like volume-based investor and company builder. So if I run that gambit across 100 to 200 companies, I'll see a few billion dollar exits, multi-billion dollar exits. Like for me, I launched seven. One of them got Tiger Global to lead the seed round and is about to do an A. That will be one of those put in 250K. Now you own a large chunk of a hundred plus million dollar company. 
The other one was like, who knows what will happen to it? North Zone came in. They raised a lot of money. Maybe they'll double down. So if you're hitting two for seven and then what you typically see is you get better over time. Yep, especially yep. if before I had shitty ideas for myself and soon I'll be getting it from the head of Fiat, I'm not going to be pressed. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Sounds like we need to, uh, we need to collaborate on something, man. We'll make sure we, we talk about stuff offline <laughs> and then yeah. tell the world. <laughs> exactly. Right now it's been funny. I've been like so low key the last two years. I went from being like a principal at a fund to like launching several venture back businesses to now having my own few hundred million dollar fund and I rarely ever talk about it. Because most people, when they ask me questions, they're like, so what are you seeing in like this thing? <laughs> they never really talk about, I don't talk about my business as much or how they're evolving. So I, I would love to collaborate and figure yeah, out ways awesome. find, whether I be an LP or we co- co-build businesses or whatever it is, man. I love that. I love it. Very exciting. Very exciting. Yeah. Building is everything. And you might, I think we all know this, but if you're a VC, you want, you want to found businesses. I don't know many VCs that like, don't wish they were like in the weeds on a, on their own business, but also there's just so much fun. I have so much fun getting exposure to the market and being able to help a multitude of ideas grow from seed to, to fully bloomed. But again, like Fiat Labs was like, that was the itch in me. Of, I still want to build stuff and uh, be a part of it. And also, gave so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we are. Yeah. Most people undervalue building an adjacent synergistic platform to the so investment true. business. Until you have that, you're never free. And you never have an outsized advantage. You're just out here scraping Amen. by, figuring out how to be a hustler. So congratulations to you, brother. Same Let's, to you, uh, man. Thank you. Let's wrap it up with a quick fire round. Yeah. So these will be like answered in one or two sentences max. And, Let's do it. Let's do it. From there, we'll say peace and hopefully come back and do this again someday. Yes, sir. Cool. So name a recommendation that you hear regularly that is bad advice in your opinion. Building a waitlist will make it so you can raise a good seed round. Waitlist are dead in my opinion. And that was a 2021 that was a 2021 thing. It's not a 2022 or future thing. I'm saying that's a 2018, 2019 thing, my boy. Facts. Hey, hey, I'm telling you, in 2021, you'd be surprised the amount of people that raise money on a wait list. <laughs> he was in a peak of a bubble. All right, cool. Facts. So hype cycles are dead. In the last year, what new belief, behavior, or habit has improved your life the most? This is just something I live by, but data doesn't care about your opinion basically saying every every decision you make needs to be measured far beyond your opinion and if you walk into a room with just your opinion you're gonna lose yo thank you for being sober i don't care about what people feel all i care about is the numbers yep this is yeah facts what is one piece of advice you'd give somebody starting a company when you start your company decide on what you want it to be Meaning, do you want it to solve a billion dollar problem or do you want it to solve a hundred million dollar problem? Because once you figure that out, you're going to realize if you can do it with or without funding. I'm just a big believer. There's a lot of, there's a lot of businesses that aren't products and they're features. And the first thing I'll tell them is, yo, you don't need to go raise seven rounds of funding for this. You can go create a really great business without the help of venture capital. Um, 
So decide what type of business you want. And at the end of the day, owning 1% of a billion dollar company or 100% of a hundred million dollar company really isn't that different. Yo, I learned that lesson when I was interning under Anthony Soleil, who manages Nas, Future, Lena Perez. I think he manages Kendrick Lamar and Gunna now too. Yeah. I remember sitting with him one day and I brought him this business that I was in love with. We both thought it was one of the sickest businesses ever. And I learned from him that day that no matter how much we loved it, that he felt that the business didn't need venture dollars and we passed. Mm. Crazy. Not even because we wouldn't have made money. We would have probably 5X, 10X our money. But that's facts. Um, You're a wise man. (laughs) Thank you. What's something you believe that other people don't? Fiat growth and fiat ventures will change the world. They don't know it yet. But God did. No. (laughs) No. People know that. They root for you. We peep you. I appreciate that. Last one. If you have one ask or request from the Confluence user base and family or myself, what would it be? This is something I intrinsically believe, which I always tell myself, respect tradition, but always question it. I think a lot of folks believe that just because it happened for 100 years means that it needs to happen for the next 100 years. Like my business today, it only exists because we colored outside of the lines. Having a venture capital firm that gets all of its access from its growth consultancy. It's very much a turning venture on its head type of model. Only got there by questioning what history told me. Love it. Yeah, we not with all that old stuff. (laughs) And we'll keep the fundamentals from yesterday, but tomorrow is what we care about. You know it. Brother. I think we can wrap up here. The only yeah. thing left for you to do is tell us who you want on here next because this community is for us and by us. And we can say peace. Yeah, honestly, you guys should definitely chat with Marcos Fernandez, our managing partner. He is my guy. And I'm just the biggest believer in the team we built around having people that have found a back door into venture. Because historically, you got to go to the right school. You got to work at the right firm to get an opportunity to create your own venture firm. And uh, no, nah, yo, yeah. I'm sorry. I hear you. We're gonna have them on next year, but you got to give me somebody that's not your partner. Ah, we need, we need the youth. You know, what you need what you need. Okay, how about this? Um, this is my cousin, and also the CEO of the San Francisco <laughs> Foundation. Your your cousin. That's crazy, but no, for sure, for sure. Spit. What's up? Keep it in the family. So, my cousin is the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation, a billion dollar foundation out here in San Francisco, basically taking a lot of high net worth individual money and reinvesting it back into city infrastructure and the overall health of like inner city communities down to affordable housing and so forth. Oh, that's definitely, definitely Yo, a massive make visionary. Make the intro and we'll get him in here in the next few weeks. Uh, that's really impressive. Now, my cousin's okay. All right. <laughs> I'm only doing it because it's your cousin. Okay, fair enough, fair and, enough. And I think they're also a person of color. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. They you are. Gotta really appreciate you coming on to the podcast. And I think I that people you. are going to enjoy this vibe. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, brother. Huge thanks again to Drew for coming on this week, and we hope that each of you are able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Drew, we've linked his social info in the description below. That includes LinkedIn and Twitter. And then also, if you're trying to get in touch with Fiat and learn a little bit more about them, their website is www.fiat.com. 
www.ghostbusiness.vc. For next steps, if each of you have not submitted your info to become a member yet, you can do that through our website at www.confluence.vc. And also, if you want to become a subscriber to the newsletter, we offer a ton of free resources in there each and every week meant to help you become better at your individual roles. You can subscribe there at www.confluence.substack.com. Hope that helps. Hope to hear from you all soon.